0: Let's turn now to John chapter 1, the gospel according to John, our brother Dane already mentioned this verse yesterday night, we want to read this verse 14 and the following verses, gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh. Of course, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. His incarnation again. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained it. And now if you turn to Second Corinthians, we want to read a couple of verses there. Second Corinthians, starting in chapter six, we want to read verse one. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse one. And working together with him, We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Again, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Chapter 8, verse 9, which was also mentioned yesterday night. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty might become so that you through his poverty might become rich. And chapter twelve, the same book. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. I'll read a couple of verses starting from verse seven. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might lead me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And finally, we want to finish this reading. In our theme verse. So 2 Timothy chapter 2. We want to read both the theme verse of the conference and a couple of other verses in the same chapter. So, verse 1 You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. For as we were reminded yesterday, a better translation would be, You, therefore, my son, strengthen yourself in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And verse 8 through 10 of the same chapter. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege to worship you together, to remember, Lord, how gracious, how loving you are, Lord, and to give you, even in a, in a poor way, to express how much we appreciate the way you have loved us, Lord. The way you deal with us at every moment. So we thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we have read your word, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may quicken these words in each one of our hearts. We confess, Lord, that you are the only one that has words of eternal life. Lord, apart from your speaking, what can we say? What value there would be in our speaking, if it's not by your Holy Spirit, if it's not you, Lord, speaking to each one of us. So we pray, Lord, would you meet us this morning, each one of us, in his or her own level, Lord, would you meet us, speak to us, reveal yourself to us. We pray, committing this time to you, our desire, Lord, is that you would be the focus, the center of this time and that you would draw each one of us to yourself. That is our prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. I thought that uh, by mean of the introduction, I really felt that as I was meditating, that it's kind of very important, in my opinion, to take a a little bit of a look of what is the background of the second epistle to Timothy. In a sense, uh, the way I felt is that the force of this exhortation, be strong, or strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, the force, the full meaning of that exhortation that Paul is giving to, to Timothy can only be appreciated, or can be appreciated in a, in, in a bigger way, let me put it that way, if we see a little bit of what is the context, the background of the epistle. And uh, I just want to give you a little bit of a, a sense of what is going on in that time. This is probably written at the end of the 6th uh, decade, 67, 68 of the Christian era. And and the times where this epistle was written were really very dangerous and terrible times in a sense. There was a persecution going on. The emperor of the time, Rome is the power of the time, of the day. And the emperor of those those days is a certain person called Nero, that probably you heard about him. And in those days, uh, Nero has started. A persecution against Christians that is really very, very, according to historians, something really very terrible. Uh, people say that, that probably the reason why this happened is that Nero uh, he set Rome ablaze. He burned Rome. I don't know exactly why, but that's what history tells us. And there is even a very uh, kind of well-known legend that while he was burning Rome, he was playing his harp, harp and, you know, having fun with the whole scene. But, of course, the people in Rome were not that happy with that, right? Uh, so, Nero now needs a, a scapegoat, needs someone to blame. And guess who he finds to blame? Christians. We're kind of a pretty convenient way uh, a way out of that. So, from that time on, which 64, 65 AD, a big persecution against Christians began. And the days are really very terrible. Uh... When Paul is writing this epistle, he himself, Paul, had been arrested as somehow as a consequence of, or uh, of those, uh, of that persecution. So, uh, of course, Paul is, would be identified like one of the main leaders of this weird movement in the view of the, of the emperor and the Christians. And of course, he would be a, a very immediate target. And he was arrested. As, as we know from the, the, the very epistle. So he was arrested in those days. Uh, if you remember something about Acts, uh, I just want to make clear that Paul's imprisonment here in Second Timothy is not the same imprisonment that we read in the book of Acts. Actually, the whole atmosphere is very different, right? The book of Acts, for those of you that remember, it ends with that scene of Paul imprisoned at Rome. However, that imprisonment, Paul, you could say that he still enjoyed a certain liberty and a certain freedom in those days. He could rent a house, he could receive people, and people would come to him. And most likely, several of the epistles that we have were it's almost certain they were written from exactly from that prison in Rome. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and so forth. But I just want to point to you that 2 Timothy, it's another imprisonment, a second imprisonment a couple of years later. And the whole atmosphere is very, very different. Right? It's very obvious. Even from reading Second Timothy, you say you could say that it's not the same atmosphere as the end of the book of Acts. In Acts you see someone that is imprisoned but still with some freedom. In Second Timothy, very, very different. Actually, Second Timothy seems to be a very, very dark time in the life of Paul. And for that matter, I I don't know in my mind if there is anything in the Bible, apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus, of course, I don't know if there is anything in the whole Bible that comes close to the darkness and the heaviness that you find in the the whole atmosphere that is going on in the days of 2 Timothy. And I feel that that background is really important if we're going to appreciate the exhortation of being strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because if you paid attention, the whole verse begins with that little important word, therefore, right? It says, you therefore, my son. And therefore, we all, everybody knows, therefore essentially is kind of summing up what came before, and here is the conclusion. Because of what I just said, now you therefore, therefore, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And if you read what is that context in chapter 1, right, that therefore is referring to chapter 1, of course, a lot of chapter 1 is dealing with that, exactly with the hardship. Tremendous hardships that Paul himself is going through. And of course, Timothy also is suffering that. Uh, our brother Dan already mentioned yesterday how this is not just something that Paul is suffering person. Of course, Paul is suffering tremendously in this, in the whole thing. But Timothy, oh boy, he's really, I, I don't know, to say that he was discouraged would be such a tremendous understatement. Timothy is someone that is torn apart with this whole thing. Some scholars think that uh, the tears that are referred to in chapter 1, uh, you, you remember Brother Dana also went through that verse yesterday, how... Paul remembers his tears and he praises the Lord, he thanks the Lord for that. Some believe that this could refer to the tears of the imprisonment of Paul. When he was, he was probably with Timothy and he was taken away by the, by the Roman guards to be taken to, to Roman judge. And certainly Timothy is broken into pieces. He's really going through the crisis of his life. We need to remember that also. If you read chapter one, Paul says very clearly that everybody, all the persons that he was associated with in Asia, had abandoned him. So I'm hoping that everybody here read the epistle. <laughs> uh, if not, there's a the homework. I know that here in the conference is extremely hectic, but hopefully everyone can, going back home, reread the epistle and try to check the things. But if you read chapter one again. You see how Paul makes reference of a very, very painful fact that he had been abandoned by pretty much everybody in Asia. and where what's, what place is that is Asia where there's what you find the Church of Ephesus. What is Ephesus? It's pretty much the place where Paul I don't know if it's the place where he spent most, most of his ministry, but certainly the most fruitful and the fullest outcome, or, or, or the fullest pouring of his heart went to that place. As we know from the, the very book of Acts who tell us that. Now imagine that. You work, you labor for three, three years. The Lord does something tremendous in that place. People really love the Lord. They respond. We know that from the, the, the book of Acts. We know that from the Epistle to the Ephesians. But at the end of your life, you're in prison, and everybody turns away from you. Everybody turns your back to you. That's what Paul was experiencing at this point. And Timothy, probably, he was exactly in, the, in Ephesus. That was the city when, where he received his epistle. He had to labor among those, those people that somehow had turned away from Paul. And, and not only that, it's not just the, the external factors, but if you read carefully the epistles, you'll see how the very condition, the spiritual condition of the church had degenerated big, big time. If you read First Timothy and Second Timothy, there is such a difference, which are, are epistles that most people would say they're one year apart, two years apart. And there is such a difference in, in spiritual condition, if you just compare those two epistles. Now, think about Timothy. Here he is, his spiritual father, the one that he loved so dearly, was in prison. And with all likelihood, he was going to face death, as he did, as tradition tells us. And Timothy now, which by nature, by disposition, he's not the man for the job, if you want to put it that way. But that's the responsibility that he has now. He has to labor in that place. I can only imagine what kind of, what kind of atmosphere was Timothy was going through in those days. And we need to remember that. If we're going to really appreciate the exhortation before us, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, it seems to me almost like what the Lord is trying to say through a verse like this, is that when you are going through a real crisis, where you're going through such days, days that are everything is falling apart, that is really what is happening. And utterly, you would be tempted to say, you know what, is this worthy? What am I doing? Is it worthy to pour my life into this, to work to suffer, and people just turn away from me. Is this whole thing, the church, following the Lord, is it worthy? When we are tempted to that because of circumstances, that's when you have the exhortation. Yes, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And it almost seems to me that this is a divine countermeasure for days like those. That's the divine countermeasure. Yes, the days are terrible. The circumstances are horrible. You, naturally, you cannot cope with that. But the Lord has a countermeasure. He says, Be strong or strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And that is what we like to pretty much concentrate in this time of meditation together. We like to go a little more carefully in, in just that sentence. Strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. I should say that I'm not going to go into the details of the immediate context, right? which probably uh, uh, we should be doing. (laughs) I I shouldn't say that, but uh, here's what I'm trying to say. If you read carefully chapter 2, you will see that after this verse, be strong, strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, Paul presents a couple of what you would call miniature parables, right? You have three or four, depending on how you can. You have the soldier, you have the farmer, you have the athlete. And it's very likely that those parables are kind of pictures of how we can, in a practical way, be strengthened in the grace, which is in Christ Jesus. So, I must say that I'm not going to go, that is not the roadmap for this, the meditation this morning. I'd like to take like the a little bit of a wider look into this matter. And we like to consider, okay, a little bit of, what is grace? How can we understand it? Uh, which is pretty much mission impossible, but, you know, we trust the Lord here. We need to experience and practice His grace right now. But that's pretty much what we, we the way we will, uh, the wider look in the Bible. What is grace? What is being strengthened in that grace? What is the source of that grace? Well, uh, Recently, I was reading something, since we're talking about what is grace. Let's let's start from that point. How do you define grace? And I read something from a brother that really touched my heart. This brother suggested that grace is one of those words that you cannot define. If you're trying to define it, you, you do damage to the word. That's the way he puts it. And he suggested, you know, grace should not be defined. It needs to be revealed to us. What is grace? However... Right? You're not going to try to define it. But it would be kind of helpful if we take a look of some of the characteristics behind of this tremendous word in the New Testament, grace. Actually, I should say this, probably you know, but grace is the very distinctive word in the New Testament. right? And uh, in John, I think this becomes wonderfully clear. So there is this kind of uh, contrast or that that John makes, he says, law was given through Moses. And that would be the distinctive factor in the Old Testament. Something that sums up the the Old Testament. And then he says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So almost you have the two testaments contrasted and summed up. On the one hand you have law, on the other hand you have grace. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that there is no grace in the Old Testament. It's the same Lord. It's the same God. But in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on law. And everything is preparing for that grace that is going to be revealed in the Lord. And that is not to say either that in the New Testament you don't find law. You do find law. But now law is not just something that you are observing out of duty, out of a code that is out of you. It's something that comes by His grace by his likeness. So, just keep that in mind. Let's not take that to an extreme. But, I think it's important to remember that this word grace, I think it's very fair. It would be fair to say that it's the, the distinctive word of the New Covenant, of the New Testament. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, what are the some of the characteristics of grace? Uh, as I was thinking on how to go about this, I thought, well, There are so many, actually. Maybe going through a passage that kind of presents several of those factors. I think it could be a a valuable exercise. So I thought we should probably read Ephesians chapter 2. If you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I would like to do exactly that. Read some verses here that if they do not define what grace is, they will reveal some of the basic elements, characteristics of this word grace. Okay? So let's read some verses here in Ephesians 2. We'll start on verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in this passage you have right there, so many characteristics of this word grace. You see that grace is there in the in the very core of everything, always describing our salvation. And he says, By grace you're saved. In other words, everything that is happening here, grace is behind. So you'll find just taking a look to our salvation. And our brother remembered or reminded reminded us yesterday how salvation is is seems to be that. Main effect of grace in our lives. That's what grace does when it's imparted. It saves us. It releases us. But let's take a look at some of the characteristics that we can find very easily in this passage, actually. First of all, grace is something that the Lord does, not us. And actually, our brother Maurice, he mentioned that in his sharing, yesterday. if you paid attention. Grace implies something that we cannot do. Somebody else has to do it for us. That is crazy. Do you realize how clear that is? We were dead in sins and trespasses. What can a dead person do? Certainly not save himself. <laughs> you cannot do nothing. If you're dead, that's it. End of game. And that was our spiritual condition. Before our Lord Jesus reached out to us. We were dead, and the Lord, He intervened. He saved us. See, that is grace. Right there you have the first thing. It's His doing, not ours. The second one, it's a very famous one. Grace is something that implies that an undeserved favor being bestowed on whoever is receiving grace is undeserved. And the passage here should make that very obvious, right? Why were we dead? What is the cause of our death? Anyone can help me. Was that? Did I hear it <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Sins. We were dead in our sins and trespasses or transgressions or whatever your translation has. That is why we were dead. Now I ask you, if you're dead because of your sins, do you deserve anything? If you're saved, you can be pretty sure that it's not because of your merits. Not because you deserve it. We do not. You know, it's very popular these days to think that man is kind of some sort of a victim. Everybody agrees that man is pretty much messed up. that part there is kind of general consensus. But then people say, well, but man is, you know, is a victim of society. Is a victim of his circumstances or whatever. Right? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the portrait of man is more of a, not a victim, but an enemy. An enmity against God that is pretty much active. It's not just a passive thing. It's something that inside our nature, there is something that opposes. We are born with something that opposes the Lord. Now think about that. If you're dead because you are an enemy of your creator, of your maker, do you deserve anything? And that's exactly what the Lord does. He saves us. He gives us His grace. Unmerited favor. That's another fundamental characteristic of grace. Let's see a third one. Which is not exactly in this passage, but since we're here in Ephesians, and it was mentioned yesterday, I think by Damon, I think, in verse chapter 3, verse 8. Let's take a look at this verse. It says... To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. There are many, many passages that convey the, a, a similar idea of what this verse is conveying, which is the idea of some enabling power. See, when grace is given to someone, some, some enabling Some capacity comes upon that person to do something for the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. See, I received a grace to preach. To announce the Lord. To announce the unphetimum riches of Christ to the Gentiles. See, that is grace. It's something that enables whoever receives it to do something. Right? So keep that in mind. Another characteristic. As a fourth one that I, I think, going back to our main passage here in Ephesians two, it's very obvious that love is big time behind this word grace. Actually, I think Dana told us when in one of his conferences. I, I love that that how he said he made a family. <laughs> this kind of love is like a is like a. There is a family of words that belong to the category of love, and there you have mercy, there you have grace, there you have. Each one has a different emphasis, for sure, okay? But they are all somehow connected with love. Behind grace, what is that love? Do you realize the big box here in verse 4? We were dead in sins and trespasses. That's verse 1. Verse 2 and 3 elaborates, right? How bad was our condition? And then he says, but God being great in mercy, because the great love with which He loved us. See, by grace you are saved. Behind grace, love. That is another fundamental characteristic of this word. Our brother Dana yesterday night mentioned yet another that I, I didn't plan even to mention, but there is a liberating power in grace. Whoever receives grace finds himself Suddenly liberated. You're free to be who you're meant to be in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And we need to confess that even when you go through many characteristics of grace, at the end of the day, you're still kind of, we're still just like scratching the surface of what grace is. So how are we going to understand? See, our, our main verse here is, Be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. How are we going to understand what is that grace at the end of the day? And thankfully, I think that our, ver- our theme verse has a very, very important key to the whole matter. Maybe the best way to understand grace is looking at the source of grace. Or to put it in terms of our verse, looking to where, where grace is located. Did you realize where grace is located according to our verse? Strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. That's the source of grace. That is where grace is located. In Christ Jesus. And I really find it wonderful. The way that John, he opens his, his gospel. I feel that there is a wonderful parallel with this, this passage that we are considering. He's speaking about the Lord Jesus. He's God. He's the maker of the universe. He's the word. He's the expression of the mind and heart of God. And He's becoming flesh. Right? And then He says, And we beheld His glory. We we looked at Him. He was a man. He became flesh. We could see Him. And when we saw Him, we saw glory. And that glory was expressed in terms of grace and truth. He was full of grace. Do you see the grace which is in Christ Jesus? Or in the words of John, full of grace and truth. Now, I, I feel that John here, he probably, when he says, and we beheld his glory. I think this is a perhaps a general statement about the Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus is full of of What you some people would call moral glory. when you just look at him, when you just see him in action, when you just hear his words, there is a glory behind his person, which is not a shining, is not a you know there is nothing kind of uh, uh, dramatic necessarily, you know, in terms of you know a, a halo or something like that. No, but there is a moral glory in everything he does, in everything he says, you somehow touch the glory of God. But, that said, it's interesting because, perhaps, perhaps, I'll put it as a possibility, John has something in mind when he refers to this passage. Because there is one event in the life of the Lord Jesus on earth, which in a very special way, reveals His glory. And of course, we started our our, our whole time reading that passage. That is what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? In that mount, as some people say, the Lord Jesus, which is the Word of God, the one that is the Son of God, God the Son, and He he left His glory behind. He became a man. No one would tell that there is something special in Him if He's quiet. You wouldn't see something like glowing, you know, in a regular day. He's pretty much, as someone said, he concealed all his glory, all the glory of his person in human flesh. He became as ordinary as you and me, outwardly speaking. Yet, there was one event in his life when that veil that was kind of hiding his glory, that veil veil was kind of lifted. And boy, glory... Came out of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if that is the right way to put it, as a veil being kind of lifted of him. I'm really not sure if I if I put it in those terms. But one thing is pretty sure: we need to emphasize what is happening in the Mount of Transfiguration. Right, the Lord Jesus takes up there John, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and something happens, and he starts shining, and his face is like the sun, his clothes like light. One thing is sure, okay? This is not something external to the Lord Jesus. That needs to be clear to each one of us, right? It's not like a spotlight from heaven started shining on Jesus, and then His face became bright, and His clothes are all like light. No, that is not the case at all. It's very clear. The word there, He was transfigured. Something happened in Him. Something happened inside him. It's like a brother said, a switch went on and boom. His glory came out. And those disciples saw him as he really is. But that was hidden by his flesh. And in those moments in the mountain, they saw how full of glory he was. Perhaps John has this in mind when he says, And we beheld his glory. As the, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's, it's sort of a pity that sometimes we consider just the story of the Mount of Transfiguration in itself, and we forget what happens after it. Because I feel that to appreciate this matter, which John puts together, he puts his glory side by side with his grace. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And when you go back to the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, you need to see what is happening after that mount to appreciate the fact. On the mount, there is no question. We see the glory of the Son of God. It's actually more the glory of the Son of Man. It's more the glory of the one that became man and he lived a perfect life. You know, we shouldn't forget that the Mount of Transfiguration is happening very, very close to the death of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps six months. Before Calvary. That's where the Mount of Transfiguration is happening. If you go. Kind of carefully on the chronology of the Gospels. So it's almost the Lord Jesus. Is at the very end of his life. And the, the picture here is beautiful. Because the Lord Jesus. He is the son. That left his glory and became a man. And he lived in this, on this earth. As a man. And as a man. He pleased His Father in everything. In everything fellowship with His Father. In everything He he did, He expressed the Father. In everything He says, the truth is coming. He's full of glory. And in that moment, it's like the Lord Jesus, you could say, that from a human point of view, is, is reaching that kind of climax of maturity in His life. And from that mountain, Don't make any mistakes. Why is He turning like that? Why is He kind of becoming so glorious? Well, from that mountain, He could have very naturally, I should say, ascended back to heaven. That mountain reveals that He he pleased His Father. And that's the voice. We didn't read that. But that's the voice that God tells the disciples. He is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He pleased the Father in everything. And he could have gone right back to heaven. And strangely enough, no, he doesn't go back to heaven. He comes down the mountain. And what he does when he comes down the mountain of transfiguration? He meets a boy that is possessed of demons. And symbolically, when he meets the boy, He's meeting a human race that is fallen, that is under the control of Satan, under the control of sin and evil. And no one could help that boy. The disciples couldn't deliver him. I'm sure the Father tried everything to help that boy. Nothing could help that boy. Do you see why Jesus came down the mountain? Do you see why he he chose not to go up? He could have done. That boy speaks of you and of me. And if the Lord wouldn't have come down that mountain, who would deliver us? Do you see how full of grace he is? see the grace which is in Christ Jesus. consider another story in the life of Christ. I I want to take you through a contradiction in the Bible. (laughs) If you read the crucifixion in Matthew, it says (laughs) if you read the account of the crucifixion in Matthew, it says that two evildoers were taken to the cross to be crucified with Jesus. Right? And it says that both of them were abusing the Lord verbally. But it's strange. When you read the account in Luke, it says that one of the of the robbers, which is actually more a murderer that also in the process. He, he was robbing and he committed a, a murder. One of them was abusing the Lord, but the other... He said to, he, he rebuked his, the other guy, and he says, "Don't you fear God being under the same condemnation?" And he said, "Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom." And Jesus said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Ah, the contradiction. You yeah? know, a lot of people like to, to find the contradictions in the Bible. So Matthew says that both were abusing, and Luke says that only one was abusing. How do you resolve that problem? How do you reconcile that? Well, if you read the account in Luke, you'll see that when the Lord Jesus was crucified, at that moment, He was praying. And He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, here's what happened. Before the crucifixion, yes, both men were abusing the Lord. There is no good robber and bad robber. I grew up with that kind of... the, The story was told to me as the good and the bad brother, right? One is wonderful and the other is terrible. No, two they deserve to be in that cross. That's the point. And both of them were abusing the Lord Jesus. But when one heard the Lord saying, Father, forgive them, that man repented right there. He said, wait a second. This man did nothing wrong. I did. I deserve to be here. But he's and he's praying, he's dying unjustly, and he's praying for my forgiveness. Do you see the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Do you see how full of grace he is? And that man repented right there, and he just said, "Jesus, remember me. I don't have anything. I don't. De- I deserve this." He, he says pretty much that to his. To his companion. He said, we deserve this. He's not coming with good deeds. He's not coming with merits. He's just saying, Jesus, remember me. Today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know if, you know. I just want to say very simply that. If there is anyone here in our midst that never had that transaction with the Lord Jesus, it's that simple. Just turn to him and say, Lord, remember me. I deserve death. I deserve hell. But you died to save me. Boom. Grace. The grace in Christ Jesus. You know, it's kind of interesting the way John ends his gospel because he says that he says that sentence, that remark, that you know, well, of course, we just I just wrote a little bit of things because if I, I John says right, I suspect that if anyone was going to write everything about the Lord Jesus, there is there is no world enough to contain the books. In everything, in every turn, you will see grace. Do you see how impossible it is to define grace? But look at Him. Look at the Lord Jesus. Look at the source. Look at where grace is located. Now, the wonderful thing to me, going back to Second Timothy, is that Paul, in chapter 1, he's making references to our salvation, right? Right? And our brother, I think both, both brothers, they read that verse. He saying, he says in verse 9, I believe in chapter 1. We were saved, not by our works, not by our deeds. We were saved by his determination, by his grace. You see, that grace, he's pretty much telling, reminding Timothy. Timothy, you already received that grace. That grace that is impossible to describe. You already received that. You are saved by that grace. And that therefore, in chapter 2, there is a more positive side of that, therefore. In one sense, it refers to the hardships that they're going through. It says, Therefore, be strong. But in another sense, Paul is saying, Timothy, you already received that grace which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, be strong in it. It's not a matter of obtaining that grace. He's not saying that to Timothy. He's not saying, go and get it. No, no, no. He's saying, you already received it. Even before eternal times, God decided to lavish you with that grace. Strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. We read a verse in 2 Corinthians, which has something to me that is kind of amazing. There is an exhortation there from Paul. He says, I urge you in my translation not to take the grace of God in vain. Can you imagine that? That grace, that grace that the Lord Jesus poured on you and in me, on that cross, on his whole life, that grace, which is ours, it can be taken in vain. It's pretty much the opposite of being strengthened in that grace. So let's put it it in this way. You already, if you belong to Him, if you already gave your life to Him, you already received that amazing grace, that indescribable grace. It's yours. But there is a possibility for us to take that grace in vain. If we, are not, if we don't strengthen ourselves in that grace that was given to us, see, the alternative is that you're taking that grace in vain. You're despising that grace. That grace will not do what it was intended to do to the fullest in our lives. What a tremendous warning to all of us. On the other hand, what a tremendous encouragement. That we take that grace that is ours, that is there in the Lord Jesus, and that we be strengthened in it. I think the word strengthened. There is something wonderful that it's, it's it's right there in the word by itself. See, you cannot strengthen something that is not there. That's let's put it as simple as that, right? Say, I cannot say. Here's a silly illustration. I couldn't say, you know, I, I think I need to strengthen my Mandarin. Because I, you know, I have two words in Mandarin. Ni hao. That's it. Which probably is one word. No idea. I couldn't say, you know, I need to strengthen my Mandarin. It's not there. I cannot strengthen it. To strengthen something implies that it's already there. that is yours. See? Timothy. That grace is already yours. It was given to you. Strengthen yourself. It was given by one that doesn't change his mind. Don't think that he gave it on the cross. And now he's having second thoughts. Should I really have given them that, they that grace? Strengthen thyself in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? How can we strengthen? In a very practical way. I feel that as I was meditating and considering this chapter 2 of Second Timothy. I feel that there is a verse that really spoke to my heart in connection to verse 1. Almost like a, a very special key, if you want to use that term. On how can we practically strengthen ourselves in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And that is verse 8. Let's read it again. Second Corinthians, Second Timothy. Chapter 2. Verse 3. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. If the grace of God is located in this person, our Lord Jesus, if God's grace is in Christ Jesus, the way to be strengthened in that grace can only be by a relationship with that person. Let me repeat that. If God's grace is located in Christ Jesus, which that's rhetorical, it is. It is in Christ Jesus. The way to be strengthened in that grace Is through a personal living relationship with that person. Therefore, here is Paul saying to Timothy. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Timothy, remember your living Lord. I feel that this, right here, you have an exhortation. Almost as if Paul is saying, Timothy... You have a relationship given to you by grace. Now cultivate that relationship. Keep, keep that relationship with the Lord Jesus. That is the strengthening bit. That is how you're going to be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And it's not just... See, here's the thing. Sometimes we feel that it's a matter of having acquiring more knowledge about the Lord Jesus. You know, with this kind of knowledge that, you know, you, you know all the facts of his life, that how he died, was born in Bethlehem, which is all important. You should know all the facts, for sure. But this is not what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That living Lord that even now is at the right hand of God. You should have that fresh, living relationship with Him. Remember. Jesus Christ. That is the key, Timothy. That is how you can go through days as dark and as heavy as these that we are going through. And go through them, not just in survival mode, but victoriously. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The key in a living relationship. I want to say two more things before we we close this time. The first is that the whole atmosphere, or the, let me put it some, in another way, it feels to me that the most kind of recurrent thought in the whole epistle is the thought of hardship. Virtually every chapter you find that idea. Of course, the days are so hard, the days are so dark, that, that Paul is, is living here. He knows deep down that he's going to be with the Lord really, really soon. That's how he closes in chapter 4, right? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. He knows, it's, now it's not I'm going. I'm going to be with the Lord. That's his time is over. Timothy still staying. And he's, trend, he's trying to encourage Timothy to be strengthened in grace, which is in Christ Jesus. So that thought of hardship, you're going to find it throughout the whole epistle. Chapter 1, chapter 2, is the mo- to my mind, is the most kind of recurrent or dominant thought in, in 2 Timothy. Hardship. Difficulty. And essentially, Paul is trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, it's almost like what Peter says, you know, you shouldn't think that it's something so, uh, so strange that you're going through trials. Don't think as something, wow, why am I going through trials? Why am I going through so, so much hardship? No, it's, that is to be expected. That is essentially what he says in chapter 3, right, to, to Timothy. He says, you know, those that want to live godly, or uh, they are in Christ Jesus, they are going to suffer persecution. That's a spiritual law. But here's what I feel that there is a problem. If you are like me, I think we, I have, or we have, let me generalize, a tendency. Whenever we start going through hardship, through problems, so some sort of difficulty, there is somehow something breaks down in our hearts. We start doubting the Lord. The Lord has lavished, as Paul says in Ephesians, His grace upon us. The demonstration of His grace, it cannot get larger than that, of what He did on the cross. Even the way He deals with us daily, we can, if you walked a little bit with Him, you can testify. He's so patient, He's so gracious, He's so good. And yet, when we start facing the problems, hardships, difficulties,
1: there is this
0: awful tendency in our hearts to doubt the love of the Lord, to doubt His grace. And then we start, oh boy, yeah, (laughs) you know. We enter in that mode of either self-pity or whatever it is that we forget That grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And I feel that right there, there is something that we need to, by the grace of the Lord, something has to be adjusted in our hearts. See, essentially, the way Paul is looking at those hardships is as opportunities to experience more grace from the Lord. See the difference? We tend to look at those at hardships when encounter to our life as a motive for doubt. Right? We start, oh, you know, what is going on? It seems exactly that seed that, was, that Satan planted in the garden, when he's somehow undermining God's character, he's saying, you know, is that what God said, that you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Do you see the, 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 how subtle? The Lord said you shouldn't eat of one tree of the garden, right? But Satan, in such a subtle way, is undermining God's character. Trying to plant the seed of doubt. Essentially trying to to tell Eve, you know, God doesn't love you. God is trying to deprive you from everything. (laughs) That's what he's saying in that very subtle question. And when we face difficulties, when we face hardships, there is such a tendency that the same device is right there. Now let me tell you something. This matter of hardships has nothing to do with age, with how old you are, how young you are. Yeah, every one of us, if you have a five-year-old, he has his hardships, he has his difficulties. It doesn't matter how old you are. You are going to face your hardship in whatever age you are. And you know, its I don't even know if it's fair to say, well, you know, the hardships that my five-year-old goes, they're so easy. But me, you know, they're so difficult, I cannot bear with them. No, no they pretty much for your age it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> it's difficult it's not, it's not an easy thing we all go through that and Paul is reminding Timothy in every corner of the epistle yeah there is hardship that's, that's part of the deal you have to be this good soldier of Christ Jesus partake of the sufferings of the gospel don't you know Peter again right don't find that that's a strange thing when you go through that no it's not strange at all so here is Paul's secret to this whole thing. And the verse that comes to mind is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember? So one day Paul, he realized he had a, a thorn in his flesh. Which in the, the original is more as a stake. Something that is kind of, it's, it's not a little, you know, a little thing here. Ouch, oh my hand, <laughs> it's so painful. No, no, it's, like a, it's like, a, you know, like a spear going inside you. That's the original. And Paul realized, I have this thing. This thing is killing me. That's it. I cannot live with it. So he prays to the Lord three times. Lord, take it away from me. Take it away, Lord. Take it away. And the Lord says, no. My grace is sufficient to you. Do you see the lesson that Paul is is learning here? The difficulties, the hardships, the impossible things. And you name it. It's different for each one of us. For some, it's going to be a physical ailment. For some, a psychological thing. For some, a difficult relationship. Difficult parents, sons, spouses. Whatever it is. But those things that we say, I cannot go on with that. The Lord says, no, no. You can experience more of my grace through this. There you have it. See what it means to be strengthened in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. As you go through those things... You turn to the Lord. You turn to that relationship. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. You turn to the one that conquered the ultimate difficulty. See, we, we think that we go through problems, right? But is there any problem bigger than death? Have you ever thought about that? That's it. If you're, if you're dead, you're dead. End of game, right? Well, your Savior, your gracious Savior... Is the one, the one that went through death. 100%. He came back victorious. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. He can strengthen you. That grace can strengthen you. In the midst of your impossible circumstances. Your impossible family. Your impossible whatever. That can become a very, the very opportunity for more grace isn't it wonderful and our brother Dana reminded us of that verse again in John in the introduction of the gospel of John it's not just that we receive grace but we receive grace upon grace the grace of your salvation that is not enough as wonderful as it is we are supposed to daily receive more and more grace. And we do that in this living relationship with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. I, like to, I want to conclude with something in those lines. Uh, I don't even know how to put it, in, under which category. But let's, let's say something like, what are the key elements, or some key elements, in this living relationship with the Lord Jesus I find that when I read First and Second Timothy, that there are many, many of those key elements of what is a living relationship, through which we are going to be strengthened in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. You're going to find them in every corner, and let, just to consider some, in, just in the second epistle, okay? Let's really quick take a, some look of, a look of some of those key elements of a living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Uh, In chapter 1. Let's read again the verse that our brother read yesterday night. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. I'm just reading this, this part. The God whom I serve with a clear conscience. If our relationship with the Lord Jesus is going to be living, real, fresh. This is not an optional thing. We have to have a clear conscience before Him. If anything happens, and it will happen, anything that we realize, oops, something went wrong here, I messed up, we know that, oh, the grace of our Lord Jesus, His blood will cleanse us as soon as we turn to Him, as soon as we confess our sin, as soon as we are in the light, we're not hiding anything. We're honest before Him. The Lord will forgive you. But we need to have that clear conscience before Him. See, there is no way. Let, let me put it in this way: If you have, if you know, anything about a relationship, you know that there is no way to have a healthy, real relationship with anyone if you keep repeatedly either hurting the feelings of that person or ignoring that person. There is no way. And our conscience before the Lord has that very important function to keep that relationship healthy. To somehow, whenever something is happening that is not pleasing to him, that will damage, that will hurt that relationship, our conscience will will tell us something. See, and Paul learned that lesson. He walked with such a clear conscience. It's his testimony. It's so consistent in the book of Acts. And elsewhere. I always serve the Lord with a clear conscience. Here you have one element of that, how you can maintain this living relationship with the Lord and be in that way, strengthening His grace. The second one, let's think in more negative things, like the conscience will have this kind of, a a little more negative function to kind of, if something is getting in the way, it will will tell you. Another one, let's read in chapter 2, verse 4. This is part of that mini, mini, miniature parable, if you will, of the soldiers. And here's what Paul is saying. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Let me use another verse to to bring home what I'm trying to say. Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father does not remain. Do you see here the, the correlation with grace? We said that grace is in this category of, is a love word, as Dana says. His, he coined this wonderful term. <laughs> but somehow, if we love the world, somehow, that grace of the Lord Jesus in us will suffer some damage. If you love the world, the love of the Father does not remain in you. It's like that. there is no... no no space in our hearts for two loves. The love of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, and loving the world. Do not love the world. Do not entangle yourself, as Paul says to Timothy, in the affairs of everyday life. And of course, he's not saying that, okay, you're going to quit school, quit your job, or something like that. It's a matter of the loyalty of our hearts. What is the first love in your heart? Sometimes a wonderful way to test that is our time, isn't it? We say, oh, of course, I love the Lord with all my heart. And then you spend 99% of your day, you know, in in the internet, in Facebook, in this, uh, and you read your Bible whenever you remember. see that they're very kind of, sometimes it's very easy to deceive ourselves. Do not love the world. If we do, the love of the Father does not remain in us. The grace of the Lord Jesus, we will not be strengthened in it. Okay? Turning to something a little more positive, still in those key elements of a healthy relationship with the Lord Jesus. Still in the epistle. Alright? Going back to verse three, there is something amazing that Paul says here. He already said he mentioned his clear conscience, and then he says at the end, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Do you see a key element of a living relationship with the Lord? I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day this is a man that is prayer for him as someone said became his very breathing that is part brothers and sisters of our relate of remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead a living relationship with him and prayer I know that this constant thing sometimes can cause problems. It certainly causes for me. And well that's what I'm going to do in my work I'm going to be you know think No, no, no. There is something <laughs> the Lord will teach us. It doesn't mean that you're not going to concentrate on your studies, on your <laughs> because you have to be praying out you know 24 by 7. But somehow there is when the relationship with the Lord Jesus is in the right position, there will be an almost unconscious turning to Him in every opportunity, even if it's just to say thank you, Lord, for Your grace in solving this problem at hand, at work, or whatever it is. There is a, there is a, a, a desire in our hearts to maintain that conversation, that channel with heaven open. That's called prayer. There you have it. Another element of, our, of this relationship with the Lord. And the final one that, is, that I want to suggest, there are many, many others for sure, I'm just kind of sampling a couple of them and pretty much trying to base it from our epistle. But another one that is kind of a, a big emphasis in both 1st and 2nd Timothy is, of course, the Word of God. So we have this very, very important and famous passage in 2nd Timothy chapter 3. We should read it together because this is so important. So if you can turn, please, chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. You see that there is no way for us to have a healthy relationship with the Lord Jesus if we don't hear from Him. And how are you going to hear from Him? Of course, he can speak in many ways. But the normal way, the day-to-day, regular, if I can use that term, way, it is going to be through his word that he's going to speak. How much time do you spend with the Lord in his word? Did you learn that secret of every day gathering your manna? You remember the story, right? That was how the people of Israel were supposed to go through that wilderness was an impossible place. You couldn't survive there. But the Lord had a provision. Every day, manna will be will shower from heaven. And we need to learn how to gather daily our manna in the word of the Lord. Did you learn that? Are you living in such relationship with the Lord Jesus? As we close, I, I just don't want to leave you with the wrong impression here. I'm mentioning this key ele- what I'm calling key elements in, in this relationship with the Lord Jesus, in remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that these things, to pray, to read the Bible, and to have a good conscience, that this is going to cause grace being given to us. No, it's the other way around. Grace already was given to you. Amazing grace. A relationship with the Lord Jesus. Which we never ever would deserve. It was given to you and to me. That is His grace. Think about that. Your maker. Dying on the cross for you. He rises. He is risen from the dead. And He dwells in your heart. He desires to have that living relationship. That is His grace. And because that grace is already there, yes, cultivate that relationship. Pay attention to those key elements. Don't, don't think that this is an optional thing. Oh, it's grace, you know, it's not law. I shouldn't read my Bible, I shouldn't pray, because everything is grace. What a misapprehension. What a misunderstanding of what grace means. Be strengthened in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And I remember that, that the wonderful hymn that we sing so often. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I think that you have a key there. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. The more we look at Him, the more more we remember, just to use the words of our epistle, the more we remember the Lord Jesus. Somehow, that glory, that grace of Somehow we will be strengthened that. Somehow we will be anchored in that glory and grace. Let's pray. So, Lord, we want to thank you for such wonderful grace that was shown to us. Lord, how true it is that you will take the ages to come, Lord, to somehow demonstrate the surpassing riches of your grace, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that somehow you would touch our hearts, the hearts of every one of us. Open our eyes, we pray, Lord, that we may see what grace was given to us. What love was given to us by the Father. And that somehow, Lord, we would respond to you in strengthening ourselves in such wonderful grace which is in Christ Jesus. We pray in his precious name.